Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I grew up in the almost entirely white suburbs of 1980s Bethesda, Maryland, thinking of myself and my world as 100% not racist. It's hard to notice what's missing. For example, pretty much any black or brown people anywhere I went except on vacation, in spite of the fact that we were right next to Washington, D.C. At some point in middle school, I learned that my Jewish dad had been unwelcome at the most popular local country club and so chosen another less popular one that admitted Jews at the time. But this seemed like a weird anomaly and boo-hoo about not getting your first choice of country club anyway, right? Then, at 16, I had to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles in Anacostia, D.C., and was astonished to find it wasn't the war zone I'd been told it was throughout the Reagan years, to see people walking calmly to the grocery store or chatting on the corner. No guns, no open-air drug markets, whatever those were. Racism, gender bias, economic elitism, they're not anomalies. They're cultural, economic, political, psychological. But as Paul Simon, a favorite songwriter of mine who some see as the poster boy for cultural appropriation once wrote, well, breakdowns come and breakdowns go, so what are you going to do about it? That's what I'd like to know. My guest today is Ibram X. Kendi. He's been working on these problems for a long time, and he's developed some powerful ideas and methods for solving them. Ibram won the National Book Award. He's the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University in Washington, D.C., and he's the author of the important new book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Welcome to Think Again, Ibram. Oh, it's great to be on the show. Uh, we should start maybe with an opportunity to respond to anything, you know, bounce off of anything that you heard in the introduction. One of the ideas I talk about in How to Be an Anti-Racist is the idea of the dangerous black neighborhood and how that may be the, the most dangerous racist idea. It's, it's an idea that is currently regularly trafficked by the president of the United States, not just for the neighborhoods of people of color, but even the nations of people of color. Right. And the reason why that idea is so destructive is not only because it causes people, it is one of the drivers of housing and thereby educational and thereby economic segregation, but it also is not really based in actual empirical evidence. And so there is sort of violent crime happening, or there was violent crime happening in in Anacostia, D.C. in the 1980s, but it wasn't because there was some connection between blackness and crime or right. violent crime. Right. Right. It's because all across the world, all across the United States, you have neighborhoods with higher levels of unemployment, higher levels of, of poverty. There's probably going to be higher levels of violent crime. And chances are, the lawmakers who are actually behind the reasons for the lack of employment opportunities in those neighborhoods do not want to look in the mirror to point to the causes of the violent crime. Instead, they point to what's wrong with those people. Right. Instead, they sort of frame the problem as those neighborhoods. And instead, they incite fear and then present themselves as the messiah from those fears. And as you point out in the book, you know, it's not as if there is a lack of crime in other neighborhoods. It's just that the crime is behind the scenes. You talk, you use the word banksters for the kinds of folks that got us into the 2008 recession. Yeah. And I think what's ironic 
is Americans are more likely to fear that young black male who is passing them on the street, who at the most, if that person is going to rob them, is most likely going to rob them of what they have on them, their credit cards, which can be easily canceled, and their cash. But when they're walking in some of the most plush parts of this country, when they're walking on Wall Street, they don't fear that white male in a business suit, even though he's more likely to steal their entire life savings. And I think that's why, that's the sort of fiction that racist ideas create. We fear the people who are actually less likely to take the most from us. We actually embrace the people who are most likely to take the most from us. I think the specter of violent crime, to some extent, is also about, I mean, there's got to be like an evolutionary thing about fear of losing your life, you know, mm-hmm. where yeah. it's better, easier for us to look at that risk than it is to look at the, you know, gradual dwindling of our stocks or whatever, right? It is. But even with, if we speak specifically about losing our lives, when you look at the top 10 leading causes of death in this country, <laughs> violent crime and homicide right. is not there and it's not even close. Right. When you look at the top 10 causes of death, you're talking about, for the most part, diseases. And so the top three being heart disease, rest respiratory disease and cancer. And then, you know, other diseases making up the top 10 with suicides and unintentional injuries. And so, you know, right now we're having a health debate in this country. And so to me, you know, obviously if someone has better access to high quality health care, then they're less likely to die of the number one leading causes of death in this country. <laughs> right, and right, so right, right. for me, if people are serious about not losing their life, right. Then they're serious about supporting those initiatives that are going to fund and provide high quality health care for all, because that is how we're most likely to die as a result of diseases, as a result of environmental factors that lead to those diseases, as a result of a series of policies that powerful people choose to support or not support. I mean, you couldn't be more right. I'm just, I think I'm talking about the lizard brain, which isn't very good at evaluating (laughs) probability, right? Um, But something that is different in the discourse that you're laying out in Mm -hmm. this book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, from things that I've read before or heard, is the idea that policy drives everything. You know, that it begins with power. People in power see an advantage to racist policy, implement racist policy, and then, you know, ideas are created to uh, bolster, buttress that policy, Mm -hmm. and then culture kind of proceeds from there. You know, we believe that people are ignorant and hateful, and that is why they produce these racist ideas. And we believe, and we've been taught, that people who have these racist ideas are the people in positions of power who are instituting or defending racist policies. In other words, they're defending racist policies because of their racist ideas. Right. And so what that means then is that if the fundamental problem is ignorance and hate, then the fundamental solution is education. And we've been trying to educate powerful people from the beginning of this country that slavery was wrong, that Jim Crow segregation Mm -hmm. is wrong, that mass incarceration and deportation is wrong. Right now, you have people who are trying to convince people who are supporting voter suppression policies based on this idea that it will clean up all of the fraud, that there is no, there's very little to no fraud, voter fraud, 
in our voting system. Right. Because we've been we believe that the reason why they're instituting these policies like voter ID laws, the reason why they're purging voters from voting rolls, the reason why they're doing these sophisticated techniques to to suppress votes is because they really believe there's a voter fraud problem. Mm. Not that they're instituting these voter suppression policies because they recognize the ways in which when you don't have votes, when you don't have the votes to win, the other way you can win is to suppress the votes of your opponents. So you have these policymakers, I should say these politicians, who recognized that they needed to suppress votes in order to basically maintain office or get elected. So then they figure out these new voter suppression techniques, these racist policies that suppress votes. Then they need a justification to tell their constituents. And that justification becomes voter fraud. And that these people of color are fraudulent and corrupt voters. Voters. And then their constituents believe those racist ideas. Right. And then their constituents become ignorant and hateful. And so and then we connect the ignorance and hate of their constituents with the supposed ignorance and hate of the politicians when the politicians knew from the beginning that there was not a voter fraud problem. But they needed a justification because all racist policies need a justification. And those justifications are typically racist ideas. One of the things in your book that is also different and possibly surprising to readers is the way that you walk through your own evolution and the way that you talk about racism as not as being the result of policies and grounded in actions rather than in people, you know, that it's not an endemic property of of a type of person Mm -hmm. and that everyone is capable of racism. Like when you talk about racism within black communities or race, anti-white racism, how does it work within that power dynamic? If, you know, racism is proceeding initially down from the policy of powerful people, then how does it instill itself in the less powerful? One of the things that I think we've done too much in defining the term racist is we have fundamentally focused and standardize the perpetrator as opposed to the victims and the outcome. And, And what I mean by that is when anyone in our society thinks that the problem is black people mm-hmm. and spends their time going after black people as opposed to racist policies, that harms black people if they are the victims of that racist policy that someone has decided doesn't exist and instead the real problem is black people. Right. And what I mean by that is fundamentally my definitions of, of racism and racist are fundamentally outcome and victim centered. And so if anyone in our society thinks that the problem is people as opposed to policy, right. then that's going to lead to a worse outcome for, let's say, black people, people of color. Even when people of color think that the problem is people of color and they do not thereby challenge racism, mm-hmm. that then leads to the inequities that are harming people of color persisting. You know, I've been trying to figure out for some time now why we have been so focused on the perpetrator rather than the victim. I know in the case of the term racist, that the way we've come to define the term racist is not by if this person is saying that there's a problem with a particular group, if this person is not doing anything in the face of racism, if this person is supporting racist policy. Instead, it's been extremely perpetrator-centered. I know part of that is because we've been led to believe that we should determine if somebody is racist based on their intent. Okay. 
right. based on their consciousness? <clears throat> are they conscious that what they're doing is hurting a particular racial group? Are they being malicious? You know, we've been so focused on the psychology of the racist as opposed to the impact of all of our actions or lack thereof on people. I just wanted to sort of emphasize that. I think as it relates to power, one of the great aspects of the way we've talked about racism in the last 50 years is we have been able to recognize just how powerful white people are in this society collectively. Mm -hmm. We've also been able to talk through just how powerful racism has historically been. But what we have shied away from and what we have as a result talked less about has been the power of every single person in this country to resist. And one of the things I'm trying to do with my work is talk about levels of power or different aspects or kinds of power. And so you literally have a policymaker who mm -hmm. literally has the power to institute and defend racist policies. That's one form of power. That's the ultimate form of power. Right. You Go also, gover government level power precisely. we're talking about. Yeah. You know, or even institutional head, right, you know, right. titan of industry. These are people who shape policy. And those are the people who have an, the ultimate form of power. But then you also have like middle managers. You have basically mm -hmm. people who manage the policies that other people have created. And some of those middle managers resist or do not carry through with what they recognize are racist policies. They figure out ways around those policies that they view as racist. Right. And you have other middle managers, you have other policy managers who recognize a policy as racist, but want to advance in their own professional careers. <laughs> right. And so do everything in their power to reinforce that policy out of their own personal professional self-interest. And then finally, you have the power of every individual to resist those policy managers and those policy makers. Right. And, and so for me, there are people of all races who are not resisting racism because of their racist ideas, because they think that there's something wrong with a particular racial group as opposed to racist policies. So do you think historically that has something to do with the fact that movements like the civil rights movement came out of a situation where people, like, that there was an evolution there, a little bit like the kind of personal evolution that you describe in the book. So that initially people start understanding, I mean, it wasn't like they realized this during the civil rights movement. People knew that there was injustice before that, but that people see widespread injustice. They see it anchored in institutions of power, in government, in mm -hmm. society at large. They are individuals they're angry and they're not sure what to do about it. And so the early iterations become backlash against that, which is driven by anger and who's the anger going to focus on. Like, and then gradually there can be an evolution toward, okay, what's actually happening here? How do we redefine policy? I think social movements and even organizations are filled with and have been filled with many different types of people. Right. You have people who are being moved by their anger and you have people who are being moved by their analysis. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously for people who are being moved by their anger, they're much more susceptible to sort of not having a very complex and sophisticated analysis right. of all these different levels of power. And they see an enemy and they're going after that enemy right? because they, they view that enemy as having harmed them. I don't think that anger is a problem, but I do think anger is a problem without analysis. Mm -hmm. And so I think that really probably the best people are people who both have anger and analysis mm. and are not letting anger dominate their decisions as much as they're allowing that anger 
to motivate them to do difficult things, if right, that makes sense. Right, know how to sort of weaponize the anger, as it were. Precisely. Yeah. You talk about how within social protest movements or movements for change, and you say, you talk about one experience that you had trying to organize people for mm -hmm. a, like a, they were going to drive en masse to Washington and just park up the streets. Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe this is when you're motivated from anger, I don't know, but that there can be a tendency within the movement for people to like judge other people for not taking the action that they want them to, when in fact they just have failed to persuade them. Mm -hmm. Again, about, about nuance and about analysis and about coming to smart decisions that are actually gonna work. Ideology and conceptions of who's radical and who's not has prevented us in certain occasions from organizing people. And what that means, and when I say organizing people, is as an organizer, there's a fundamental recognition on multiple levels that part of the job is to literally persuade people to think of their society in a different way, right. to get them to try a different set of tactics to solve the problems of their society. And part of the job to me of an organizer is to meet people where they are and get them to sort of be that and see that. Mm -hmm. I don't see somebody being an effective organizer if they go into a community and say, this is what is. And then if the communities or if a community member says, no, it's not, and then they <laughs> respond, well, you're not radical enough. Right, or you're a you bunch know. of cowards or whatever. Yeah, I don't, that, yeah. that has never been effective. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> You know, I think that's an extreme example, but I think that it's absolutely critical for us when we're thinking about trying to sort of mobilize people for a campaign that's short-lived right. or organize people for a campaign that's more long-term. Part of that is the process of, of persuasion. I mean, the Black Panther Party, for instance, one of the important aspects of their organization that is not talked about enough was their political education classes. That right. when they had new recruits to the party, these people would undergo very important political education because essentially it was trying to get people on the same page conceptually. Mm. So they literally can become a long-term member of the organization. Right. When a person doesn't, you know, let's say if I'm trying to explain to someone that there's nothing wrong with black people, there's somebody who's well-meaning, there's somebody who I'm trying to recruit to a particular cause, they're open-minded, but they just have not been able to recognize that. Who is to blame? Am I to blame because I should have used a more persuasive or compelling argument or are they to blame? And what I'm always, what I'm saying is I would be to blame. Hmm. That the organizer, Take that the, the mobilizer, that, yeah. that, that the, the liberator fundamentally should be seeking and changing tactics when old tactics don't work. So to this end, right, like I've been hearing a lot in progressive discourse, people talking about being exhausted, mm -hmm. doing the emotional labor for other people. I don't want to do the emotional labor for you. But then usually this is coming on the heels of an accusation that somebody is flaunting their white privilege or they are showing white fragility or whatever. And then the next thing is, no, I don't have time. Go read, go read some books. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm exhausted. If I push back against that to that person, right, then we're in that dialogue where it's like, okay, well, that's because of your white privilege that you're pushing back against me, right? But mm -hmm. then I feel like this isn't a conversation. Like telling me to go read a book, someone who has just sort of attacked me, say, go read a book, isn't going to lead me to go read 
that book. The context I was talking about before was a little bit different in this context. So that, okay. that earlier context was somebody has a, you know, they have an organization. Right. They're pushing a campaign and they're trying to get people to sure. join it or support that campaign. Moving into a different sort of context. Sure. Sure. I do think it's the individual's responsibility to get themselves past their own racist ideas and start the process of being anti-racist. But I think when a person of color decides that they are going to essentially assist a white person along their path to being anti-racist, they should make that conceptual choice. And, mm. then, and then when they make that choice, they should recognize that it's not going to be easy right. and that they are going to be difficulty along the way. And, and I don't think mm -hmm. the first sign of difficulty should we, we should say, oh, well, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. You know, either you make the choice to help someone along. Right. You don't have to. Um, you don't have to yeah. make that choice. But if you do. But when you do, you should you should follow through. Yeah. And I should be clear that I've but, heard this also from white progressives toward other white people, you yeah. know, that are saying, like, I don't have time to educate you. You go figure it out. Although my feeling is like if you are anchored in a biased worldview, depending on the intensity of the bias, it may be a little bit difficult to educate yourself out of it, you yes. know, without help. I typically advise that people, if they're going to help somebody, right. that they should help somebody who's open-minded. Hmm. If the person is asking for help and the person is self-critical already and the person is open-minded, then I actually, in that type of context, it's probably not going to be that exhausting. Right. In, in other right, words, right, so right. first, they're already self-critical. They are open-minded. And so essentially what they need is a guide. That type of process is not exhausting. What's exhausting is when a person is still in denial and a person is closed-minded. So every piece of evidence you show them, they're like, oh, where'd you get that from? And I think it's critical for people to recognize the types of people that are going to make them exhausted mm -hmm. and the types of people who are not. I don't think that that person who is, who's no longer in denial, who's confessing the ways in which they're racist, who is just seeking basically a guide, I don't think that that type of person is going to be exhausting. And then, but then let's say if you start helping that person, and then at a particular point, their denial takes over right. or they close off, then you can walk away. I wonder in this context what your thoughts are on the phrase white fragility, like as a, as a term. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You talk in the book at different times about helpful and unhelpful framing devices. Mm -hmm. I understand, you know, my understanding of the term white fragility is that it's referring to defensiveness and pushback mm -hmm. when white individuals are told that they are being racist or holding racist views or whatever. And I don't know, honestly, if I'm being defensive in my reaction to it, but my reaction is that the term itself, unlike some of the work that you're trying to do in the book, it sounds as if it's endemic, an endemic quality of white people. You know, it sounds as if it's what it's saying is white people are fragile, as opposed to saying when confronted on that racism, they get defensive, which it seems to me like anybody holding any kind of bias in any situation, if initially, if they never heard it before in their community, if someone comes in from the outside and says, this is the case, you're, you're in the dark, you're in the matrix, you know, you don't see anything. The first reaction psychologically might be defensiveness. I think what we should sort of understand is there is an endemic amount of racist ideas uh, among white people. Um, it's very, very difficult to grow up in this country 
if you're white and to, to not be racist. And I actually talk about this sort of double consciousness yes. that white people have. And it's, and you know, it's really sort of arguing between these two kinds of racist ideas. Um, which are, and, uh, um, uh, we should say for the audience, uh, assimilationism or segregation. Segregationist, yeah. yeah. So basically one idea saying that, let's say black people are animals and should be, we should be far away from them as possible. The others right. are black people are like children. So we should bring them close and civilize them. And so racist ideas among white people are endemic. And then what is essential to the life of racist ideas and racist policies and racist racism in general is the defensiveness and denial. Uh-huh. Got it. And then I think this is what I think Robin was getting at in her book. This and I is think uh, Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo. Yeah. And, and I think that she provided example after example that it wasn't just the defensiveness. And so there are a number of different ways in which people become defensive. But when it comes to white people who are defensive or in denial about their own racism, it actually leads to something else. And that something else is typically extreme amounts of anger mm. or sadness. Mm. And so, of course, she talked a lot of, she talked, for instance, about white women's tears or even the anger of white men. And so that then, those emotional sort of responses, I think is what she correlated to be the fragility. And that fragility was based in whiteness, a form of whiteness that is deeply racist and deeply in denial about its own racism. You know, I don't necessarily, therefore, you know, I think it makes sense because I think I do, and I have sort of witnessed and recognized that fragility among white people who are in denial and a simultaneous strength among people, white people who are striving to be anti-racist. Right. Because when a person who is white who's striving to be anti-racist is identified or told that they're racist, they don't break down and start crying and they don't get angry, they don't lash out. So when I was, you know, when I was in DC, like a young man, maybe 21 or whatever, I I worked at Living Stage for a while, which is an outreach arm of Arena Stage. And it was doing, they were doing all kinds of workshops. And one of there was an amazing actress and educator, Rebecca Rice, Mm -hmm. who's also an activist, you know, in in DC. I think she's no longer with us, but they did a anti-racism workshop with all of us for about a week. And I was 21 at the time. I'd never experienced anything like this. And there was a, a young girl younger than me, maybe 18, uh, who had come from the Midwest and who was, you know, a, a nice, sweet, friendly, idealistic person, right? And who I, in her way, wanted to help but didn't know much about the world. And this workshop happened and there was a, a lot of conversation about systemic racism and basically the message, all white people are racist, which is true. And she broke down she broke down in tears. She was completely shocked and horrified, you know, to be told this. And, but I wonder, like, defensiveness is one thing, I think. When we talk about tears, couldn't that be the breaking open of something that, later, that turns into vulnerability that later turns into learning? So it depends. Right. And okay. so I think, for instance, white woman who murdered Botham Jean, of course, presented her tears. And Robin D'Angelo and other, particularly white women scholars, have been talking for years about the role white woman's tears plays mm. in our culture okay, and, and the ways in which white women have weaponized their tears 
Okay. And so, yeah. you know, to present them as the victims in this space. Got you. So then in those sort of trainings like yours and other trainings, and Robin talked about this in her book, those white women become the victims. They become the center. Everyone starts to crowd around them and help them. Mm -hmm. And therefore it takes attention away from, let's say, the people of color who are truly being harmed by racism. And so what I'm, I'm saying this to say that certainly there, there probably have been white women um, or even white men who cried in a way that was almost an opening because they were sort of crying tears of recognition of how racist they were being and had been historically and really sad and let's say guilty about what they have done or their unawareness of who they were. And then that then moment led to an opening and a transformation for them. That certainly, I'm sure that has happened. But what has become the sort of cultural marker of white tears in spaces in which white people are accused of being racist has historically been a form of denial, okay. has historically been a switching of no, you know, you are not the victim person of color. I am the victim. And it reinforces this longstanding notion among white racists that they are the victims. Slave owners presented themselves as the victims. Got it. Jim Crow segregationists presented themselves as the victims during the civil rights movement. And obviously the supporters of Donald Trump imagine themselves as the victims of racism today. All of that seems absolutely right to me. I guess I guess what I'm thinking about is that there is some educational suasion, some journey mm -hmm. of educational yeah. suasion that needs to happen from being totally grounded in one worldview to being anti-racist. Yeah. And somewhere along the way, you're not going to yet be that person that is completely open. You know what I mean? Like you have to learn that somehow. Yeah. So what does that journey look like? Well, I think for everyone, it actually is very similar. The first step is one recognizing the ways in which they have been expressing racist ideas and presumably even supporting racist policies. And so essentially confessing the ways in which they've been racist. Right. And if someone else points that out, particularly a person of color, mm. then in that moment, crying or getting emotional <laughs> is equivalent to you, one of us literally punching somebody repeatedly. And then when the person says, you're, you're punching me, mm. and then you recognize you're punching them, you start crying because, oh my God, I didn't realize those. And, and as opposed to recognizing you just hurt somebody and Got that you, you shouldn't Got be the you. one who's crying, you should be the one who's comforting. But I think after one confesses the ways in which basically recognizes their racist ideas, figures out those racist policies and policymakers that they've been supporting, then the next step is to adopt a more anti-racist perspective of the world. And what that means is, is saying that there's really nothing superior or inferior, wrong or right, about any of the racial groups, that the racial groups are equals, which then means that racial inequities and injustices in our society are not the result of groups of people, are not because certain people are better or worse. It must be because of racist policies. Mm -hmm. In other words, black people are twice as likely to be unemployed in this country, not because there's something wrong with black workers, not because they're lazy or unqualified or prefer welfare. It's because of racist policies within our employment industry. And so 
that then causes the person to be like, okay, now what are the areas or what are the sectors that I am most passionate about? So if I'm a, mm. you know, if I'm a nurse and I'm really concerned about my hospital or about the nursing industry, right? Or if I am a person who is really concerned about my neighborhood, you know, what is the space and place that you are most passionate about that you're already involved in politically or you most care about and you're not necessarily involved? And then it is that space that you begin to analyze in which you decide, okay, are there racial inequities in this space? And then what policies are actually causing these racial inequities? What organizations or people are in the process of challenging these racist policies? And how can I support them? Got it. So if they are a policymaker, a politician, I can support their campaign. If they're an organization, I can fund them or I can join them. Think about, okay, what do I have to give? Do I have time? Do I have expertise? Do I have money? Mm -hmm. And give that. And give that to the cause to the challenge to those racist policies in your space and to the sort of movement for anti-racist policies that will actually reduce those racial inequities. So your group in American University, the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Institute, is it called? Um, Policy Center. Policy Center, sorry. What are some of the kinds of initiatives that you you all are supporting? Mm -hmm. It's very interesting chapters in your book where you talk about moving from educational suasion toward activism and what real activism looks like. We're seeking to bring together scholars, policy experts, journalists, and advocates who typically are very critical in the process of of racial change onto the same teams to address and examine and, and begin the process of seeking to solve a particular racial crisis. We're also organizing what we're calling policy convenings where we sort of bring together specialists and experts in a particular field or sector to set an anti-racist policy agenda or to create policy where it doesn't exist. Gotcha. And then finally, we're, of course, we are engaged in educational, mass educational work, which hopefully gets people to see that the problem is policy and not people. And one of our major initiatives with that is we put on a national anti-racist book festival. And so mm. we put on one this past year and we had upwards of a couple thousand people and, and we're expecting, we're planning one for this coming 2020 on April 25th. So it's obviously not the case that education is a problem or educational suasion doesn't work. It's that it it needs to be a vector leading to action and Precisely. change. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's the orientation to education. So if we view education as the solvent, right. that all we just need to do is educate everybody and everything will be okay, then everything will not be okay. Right, right. But if we educate people into campaigns, into mm. movements, into positions of power, that they can use those movements, campaigns, and positions of power to make change, then that's a completely different scenario. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. 
So connected with this question of the direction in which racism moves, you know, for whether from policy or culture or, you know, I have been reading a book about Cambridge Analytica, about the 2016 elections and about basically the mass social media campaign that was mounted to polarize the United States at that time culturally, which may very well have played a role in the Trump election. Uh, I wanted to read you a section, just a short section from it, to get some of your thoughts on this because I found it pretty explosive. This is where they are basically trying to gather social media data in order to create digital representations of each human in America mm -hmm. in order to understand, based on psyops, like from warfare, how to psychologically target and then change behavior. Mm -hmm. This is um, Mindfuck by Christopher Wiley, who is the whistleblower of Cambridge Analytica. But one of the psychologists on the team started coming to me to show me some of the new race projects. He showed me the master document of research questions that were being fielded in America, and my stomach dropped when I started reading. We were testing how to use cognitive biases as a gateway to move people's perceptions of racial outgroups. We were using questions and images clearly designed to elicit racism in our subjects. As I watched a video of a man who was a participant in one of the field experiments who'd been provoked by a Cambridge Analytica researcher's guided questioning into spasms of rage, racist insults flying from his mouth, I started to confront what I was helping to build. In our invasion of America, we were purposefully activating the worst in people, from paranoia to racism. I immediately wondered if this is what Stanley Milgram felt like watching his research subjects. We were doing it to ser in service to men whose values were in total opposition to mine. Steve Bannon and Robert Mercer, that's the billionaire who funded Cambridge Analytica, were more than happy to hire the very people they sought to oppress, queers, immigrants, women, Jews, Muslims, and people of color, so that they could weaponize our insights and experiences to advance these causes. I was no longer working at a firm that fought against radical extremists who shackled women, brutalized non-believers, and tortured gays. I was now working for extremists who wanted to build their very own dystopia in America and Europe. In the end, we were creating a machine to contaminate America with hate and cultish paranoia, and I could no longer ignore the immorality and the illegality of it all. I did not want to be a collaborator. So to me, this is a, a manifestation of, of what I call racist progress, and, and that is the increased sophistication of not only racist policies and not only racist ideas, but the methods in which racist ideas are delivered to the public. And so they're delivered in specialized ways. And so just as you have doctors who are figuring out ways to create specialized care for every single different patient, mm -hmm. so too do you have these people seeking to create specialized forms of racist ideas that could target and move every single mind. And they're doing it knowing very well that these ideas are false knowing very well that these ideas will harm and divide people for a very obvious political purpose right. and political gain. They were working for the Trump campaign. And, and I, yeah. I just want people to recognize that this is not an anomaly. And so slaveholders, they did not have the data, they did not have the technology that this firm had, but essentially, they were doing the same thing when they were crafting racist ideas mm -hmm. for mass consumption right. to get people to believe that there's, there's nothing wrong 
with slavery. And Jim Crow segregationists did the same thing. Confederates did it. White nationalists are doing it. The history of racist ideas is the history of people creating these sophisticated or simple racist ideas to make people hate and make people ignorant. Psyops. You know, you have a hopeful vision and an optimistic vision and you have practical action to take and you want to push back against narratives of like systemic racism that make things seem so gigantic and obscure that we can't possibly get a handle on them. But when I look at this kind of thing happening behind mm -hmm. the scenes, right, I mean, you can fight this at the policy level too. You can basically say this organization shouldn't be allowed to do this, right? But what I, what I see a lot of is these kind of like shady metastasizing technologies of disinformation. And I think, how does the individual fight that? Where do we, you know, where do we begin? That's just feels dystopic and hellish well, to me. I mean, we could do like Germany and just ban it. I think that it's incredibly difficult. It would be incredibly difficult to truly be able to create an anti-racist society where anti-racist ideas are our common sense and anti-racist policies are the law of the land when you have people of means who have the ability and who can legally mass produce and mass circulate false and dangerous racist ideas for the consumption of unsuspecting people. I don't know whether you can truly create an anti-racist society if that is still legal. Right. And the reason why I say that is because people will say, oh, well, you can just guard against that. The whole reason why these ideas are effective is because they figure ways around the guardrails. Right. And, and so, you know, I've been calling for some time for I think that we should literally ban the use of racist ideas in public spaces and among public officials. And that's a very specific ban. It's not saying no one can say and express racist ideas, but public officials who have massive bully pulpits and platforms right. who have historically used racist ideas that they didn't even believe to manipulate Americans should not continue to have that ability. And in public forums like social media, these are not places and spaces where false and dangerous ideas that can lead to people being mass shot should legally be able to circulate. But people say, oh, well, that's an attack on free speech. Right. Or they catastrophize and, and go to the like slippery slope yeah, argument, whatever. That is not an attack on free speech, just as gun control is not an attack on the Second Amendment. This is trying to figure out a way to ensure that people have the ability to speak and that their speech is not going to mass harm people. That's the same thing with the Second Amendment. How do we figure out a way in which people have the ability to buy guns, but then simultaneously ensure that they're not going to mass kill and kill people with those guns? That right. to me is the happy medium we should be trying to get to with both of these amendments. You know, we don't have perfect free speech anyway. You can't yell fire in a movie theater is the classic example. You well, know? actually, you, you can now. You, oh, you can? Yes. Yeah, so they changed that in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? That legal standard okay. that Chief Justice, I believe, Holmes okay. said was changed in the 60s. Oh, okay. And, All right. So you and, can yell fire in a movie theater. And, and so, but to your point, I, when I was a student growing up in Jamaica, Queens, 
I could not curse out my teacher and then turn around and say, oh, you can't punish me. You can't suspend me. You can't give me detention because I was free speech. Right. Essentially, what happens when people put on the banner of free speech, they're trying to escape punishment. And it is absolutely the case that kids cannot say things to their teacher and claim free speech. We can't say to our bosses, you're a jackass, and then turn around and say, it's our free speech. Sue them for firing and, us or whatever. Yeah, I mean, yeah. these are, and so mm -hmm. there is all, there are many different ways in which speech is limited in our society, and it's commonly understood that it should be limited in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's the basic thing, it's a basic social contract. Like, yes. you you know, we don't live on an island individually, we live together. So yeah. well, there's got to be some rules governing how that happens. And so, yeah, if a student should not be able to curse out their teachers whenever they want to for no reason and escape punishment on the basis of free speech, if an employee should not be able to curse out any of their other employees at any point for no reason and be able to escape punishment on the banner of free speech, then public officials should not be able to express false racist ideas and get away with it on the banner of free speech. So many Americans, when they think about the banning of racist ideas or this type of speech, mm -hmm. they look in the mirror and they realize that they could be essentially punished and they don't want to do that. Just as sure. if we had schools in which kids were regularly cursing out their teachers, and then we started talking about, you know, that that would, of course, become punishable. Right. Those kids wouldn't be like, oh, okay, let's do that <laughs> right, now. Right, right, right. You right, know, right. they're not going to support Not going to vote that. against your own self-interest. Exactly. Um, Ibram X. Kendi, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. I think we've come to the end of our time, but obviously conversation isn't enough, but it seems to me like these are conversations that, need to go on and on and on. Certainly. Thanks so much for being here. All right. Thank you. All right. How can we have these conversations honestly and productively? Conversations that lead to positive action. That, for me, is the essential question. We barely scratched the surface of Vibram's book today, which offers some of the best answers I've heard yet. You can email me your thoughts on this or anything else through my website at jasongotts.com. Please do. I love hearing them. And I'll be back next week with something totally different. See you then.